Good morning. It's good to be back. I, I, I wasn't preaching last week. Daniel preached for me. And what you wouldn't have known is I had like this small minor surgery. I had these two cysts taken out of my neck and my back. And for the first time in my life, I got an IV, which I was terrified of. I thought the thing was going to throb the whole time. But it was actually amazing. It just put me right out. And then I just woke up and it was over. So it was a huge blessing to me. Anyway, um, I am back. But I'm so grateful Uh, for Daniel and the message that he gave on joy last week. Isn't that amazing that the first sign that Jesus did, according to the gospel writer John, was to turn water into wine, you know? Not raise someone from the dead, not uh, heal the lame, deaf, or blind, but he just saved a a newlywed couple from a social uh, inconvenience in Uh, being marginalized because they didn't have the money to provide enough wine for apparently people who needed to drink a lot of it, yes? Um, And Jesus showed up even in that because Jesus cares about our joy. In fact, throughout this entire series, we're looking at all kinds of ways that we are learning about who Jesus is and we are having the scriptures themselves shape how we see Jesus. Did you know that one of the most important things that you can answer in your life is who do you think God is? Who do you think he is? And the way that you answer that question will shape everything about you. It'll shape the way you work. It'll shape the way you treat people. And did you know, you may or may not, do you know that in Colossians 2 that uh, Paul says that in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of God? Isn't that unbelievable? In Jesus are hidden all the treasures of God. And so as we turn to Jesus and we look and see who he is, he starts to be the interpretive key by which we see the entire scriptures, the entire the way that God works. We've seen throughout this series a couple different stories, and today we turn to the feeding of the 5,000. Um, the first week we looked at the, gift, the gifts of the Magi, and we saw that these men who came from afar to worship this newborn king who use astrology, which in the Old Testament was condemned, was the very means by which God used to bring these men to himself. Because he wasn't all that concerned about whether they understood the rules. He wanted the men to find Jesus and found them. They did, and they worshiped, right? Because God has a heart that all people would know him. Jesus teaches us this. Week two, we looked at his baptism, and we saw that Jesus went into the waters of baptism not the way John thought, with fire and brimstone judging the wheat from the chaff, but instead, Jesus went into the waters of baptism, and here's before he's done anything, you are my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. And Jesus teaches us, right? Jesus teaches us that our identity is, is in being a beloved child of God before we do anything or don't do anything. Last week, we saw the gifts of joy uh, at the wedding and how Jesus turns the water into wine. And today, we turn to another equally beautiful passage. It's found in Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 through 21. And I invite you to turn in your Bibles there because it's just helpful to have the eyeballs on the, the, the letters every so often, right? Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 through 21. If you're using one of the Bibles we provide, it's right in the seat in front of you, and it's page 796. And the story that we're looking at this morning um, is going to be this feeding of the 5,000. It's a beautiful story. It's the only uh, story of Jesus' miracles that is recorded in all four of the Gospels. There are four different Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 
They are the record of the events of the life of Jesus. So when we say the Gospels, that's what we're referring to. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Two of them were written by actual followers of Jesus. Matthew and John and Mark and Luke were written by close associates of those who followed Jesus. Luke was a doctor who carefully studied the life of Jesus, who talked to eyewitnesses. We learn all about this in Luke chapter 1. And then Mark was a, a close, like, missionary associate of Peter who followed, uh, uh, who had a small missionary, went on a missionary journey with Paul and had a hard time keeping up, and you can read all about that in the book of Acts. I give you that uh, background to let you know that these aren't just nice stories. These were, Jesus was a real person who was the Son of God, who lived, who walked, who breathed, and who revealed to us in human form who God is and what he looks like. Matthew chapter 14, verse 13 through 21. Before I read the text, I do, I'm just going to do a, a really uh, choppy aside. I want to I preview a few things that are coming in the life of our church. And then we're going to jump right into Matthew 14, 13 through 21. So if, you have a, if, you, if it takes you a long time to find places in the scripture, this is like crazy long. So here it is. This month, February, at the end of the month, February 26, for the third straight year, we are going to have a special service on Ash Wednesday. In our church tradition, we don't always, our churches in our tradition don't always do this. We are doing this to begin the Lenten season, and I'm talking about it early so that you can mark your calendars, February 26, Wednesday night at 7 o'clock, and invite you to attend, because I believe that this service and the season of Lent has a really important spiritual place in our lives to shape us, and to transform us. And Ash Wednesday is the time that begins the 40 days before the Easter, uh, Easter Sunday. We practice and we are going to participate in Lent because Lent does for us spiritually a few things. Lent reminds us of our sinfulness. It reminds us of our mortality, right? And it reminds us of our need for God. We do not, at church, speak down to you all the time and say, like, you are such a worm, you're just so lucky that God loves you, you evil sinner, right? We don't talk like this in church. But Lent is an important season to remember. Sin is the, the doctrine of sin that you were not loved because you are lovely is, to me, one of the most beautiful things that we can ever receive if you receive it. Did you hear what I said? You are not loved because you are lovely. You are loved because God loves you. The Lenten season is a time of reflection in which we are reminded what we are like apart from God. Right now, we are in a season of epiphany in which we are looking at who God is as revealed through his son, Jesus. But the Lenten season is a time for us to focus on what we are like apart from God. That series we're going to call, we're going to start that the Sunday after Lent. Uh, I believe that's March 2nd. And it's going to be, we're doing a new series. It'll be five weeks for the five weeks of Lent. And we are going to see what humanity is like apart from God. It's going to be called Humanity Revealed, in which we're going to see that humanity apart from God very quickly deteriorates into pride, into greed, into jealousy, into prejudice. And yet... God looked down at us in all of that stuff, pride, jealousy, prejudice, greed. And he didn't say, ew, you are icky, get away from me. Instead, what does God say? But God demonstrates his own love towards us in this. 
if you didn't know, I'm quoting the scripture right now. So I'm quoting what Paul says. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The Lenten season prepares us for Easter. It's not just about lilies, which we actually don't have, or Easter dresses, which you are welcome to wear. We don't dictate to anybody what they wear, right? It's not just about nice songs and pomp and circumstances. It's about the reality that the Son of God entered into our reality so that he might die for our sins, so that we might be forgiven, and he proved that he had the power to do so because God became flesh and he died a death he did not deserve and he was resurrected from, from death to life and lives eternally now at the right hand of the Father until he returns. This is what Easter is all about. But it's like, I love to watch movies. I love Lord of the Rings. And have you ever, like there's like certain scenes in Lord of the Rings that every so often um, I will go back to and I'll just watch them in, in um, I'll just watch them by themselves, right? But you know, you really don't feel the glory of the destruction of the ring if you just skip to Mount Doom and it's just there, you know? Does this make sense? You can nod your head. We are Baptists, so we don't say a lot of amens, but you can nod your head. Does this make sense? We need to feel the weight of what we are like apart from God to be able to understand the joy and the celebration. So Lent is not a season designed to depress you, but to give you joy. And so we invite you to it. And um, I, I actually am excited about what I have to speak about today. So let's return to that as well. Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 through 21. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. And hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the town. And when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. And as evening approached, the disciples said to him and came to him and said, this is a remote place and it is already late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We only have five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. And he took the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven and he gave thanks. And he broke the loaves. And he gave them to disciples And the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate. They were all satisfied. And the disciples picked up the 12 basketfuls of broken pieces, picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces from that which was left over. The number of those who ate with them were about 5,000 men. And there were also women and children. This text teaches us something really important about God. But to understand the full weight of this text, you have to understand the context of the passage. You see in verse 13, it says, when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew to a solitary or a private place. So the reader is immediately, when they read this text now, they're thinking to themselves, well, why did he withdraw? What did he hear about that had happened? What Jesus has heard about is his close friend and relative, John the Baptist, has recently been beheaded. You read all about this if you just turn the page one over, Matthew 14, verses 1 through 12. His close friend and family member, the person we looked at who baptized him, the person who Jesus said, there is no one greater of those born among women than John the Baptist. It is John the Baptist 
who has just been killed. He's been killed by the ruler of the region, Herod, because he confronted Herod about his sin. And, um, you know, you can read about it in Matthew 14, 1 through 12. And Herod had him killed. He was beheaded. And now Jesus hears the news that his friend and close relative is dead. And so, and this is, I just love these texts, right? Jesus is just sad. I think some of you, um, some of us are sometimes led to believe that God is unemotional, right? You know, sometimes we can even teach each other that unemotional is good. You know, if you get emotional, it is bad, right? I mean, I understand that to a certain degree. If you get too emotional, you're just kind of crazy. But emotion is not the problem, right? Jesus is sad. And what does Jesus do because he's sad? He goes off to a private and very, very remote place. He gets in a boat and he starts making his way uh, to be by himself. Have you ever wanted to be alone? You know, you're just, you're just sad. And so you wanted to be alone. I could share times in my life. I don't really want to tell you the circumstances because I'm embarrassed about them because they're not that big of a deal. But there were times in my life when I was a teenager especially, which I will admit, I did not have great emotional fortitude as a teenager. Um, I don't know if emotional fortitude is actually my strength today either, but I am better than then. But there were times when I was a teenager when things would happen that I, I was so sad. And I remember I would go down into my basement. This is just sad. And I would, I would sit in this rocking chair and I would just rock and it creaked because it was my grandpa's old rocking chair because that's where you put the stuff that you don't want that family gives you in the basement. And then you'd look out the, I would look out the window for hours. I would just rock in that creaky rocking chair and look out the window because I just wanted to be alone, right? Jesus wanted to be alone. He gets in a boat. He goes to a private place. And the crowds hear that he is going, and they immediately start to follow. In fact, I don't know if they must, I don't know if they knew the trajectory of the boat and they guessed where he was going to be, but he lands, Jesus does, his boat at the remote location where he expects to find solitude, and he finds a massive crowd of people. And it's not even a party, you know, like maybe you just want to be alone and you get home and you have a surprise party and everybody's celebrating for you and excited. No. Imagine that you are really sad and you want to be by yourself. And so you go to a solitary place. Maybe let's say it's a church. You know, have you ever watched one of those like Hallmark movies and uh, the protagonist goes through a really hard time. And so they go to the church and they want to be alone and, um, They're all by themselves and they're praying and then the preacher comes up and says something really nice and wise and it makes it all better. I haven't found that to be my experience when I deal with people, but Hallmark preachers are, you know, they have the advantage of the script, you know. (laughs) They can write the story however they want. Anyway, I haven't found that to be my experience because life is hard and after I talk with you, it's still hard. But anyway, um, Jesus goes to place, but no, it's not even that he wanted to go and be alone and they they had a party for him or celebrated him. They get to there. Imagine wanting to go to that church and be alone and you go into the sanctuary and all the chairs are removed and a soup kitchen has been set up and now Jesus arrives at the location and not only can he not be alone, not only is there tons of people, but they are wanting and demanding something of him. Heal my sick, right? Heal my sick. Tell us something awesome. We need you do something for us. Now, 
I know enough about myself. I won't project into your imaginations in life. But if I really needed to be alone and I arrived at a place where there were tons of people uh, who were demanding things from me, my initial reaction apart from God would be frustration and anger, right? You boneheads just leave me alone, right? You leave me alone. I need some time. And yet, what does the text say that Jesus' reaction is? Verse 14. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them. Compassion. What does Jesus reveal to us in this text about who God is? That God is a God who gives of himself for others. That God is a God who gives of himself for others. There are times when we just simply need to be alone and take care of ourselves, which is why Jesus was doing this and why Jesus, as soon as this event is over, will then find that time and be by himself. But when people came and he saw the needs of the people, Jesus has time for them. He is a God who gives of himself for others, even to the point of willing to be interrupted. I think... In the life of Jesus, there's this work that is going on that needs to go on in the life of all of us, where before we go into the event where we are supposed to give of ourselves of others, and this can happen at any time, even in unexpected ways, just like in Matthew chapter 14. Jesus wasn't planned for, Jesus wasn't ready for, all of a sudden there was just this huge crowd that wanted and needed him, and he was ready, you know? Before we are ready to give of ourselves for others, we need to have God do a work in our lives, in our hearts, where he is supernaturally transforming us so that we are loving those who are other than us and who have need versus fear them, right? We need God to do a work in our life so that when we look at other people, our hearts are filled with love, not fear, not frustration, not condemnation, but love, right? Isn't this the idea, xenophobia, where you're afraid of everybody, or xenophilia, where you learn to love other people? Other people that are not like you or like me, and we're all different, right? But here's this massive crowd, and God, or Jesus, admittedly has some advantages because he is the son of God incarnate, right? Has had the work of God act on his life in such a way that when he comes into contact with people, his first response is love, not condemnation, not fear, not frustration, but love. Because God is a God who gives of himself for others. And so our choice is clear. We see who God is. What is our choice? Our choice is, will we also give of ourselves for others? Or will we, and here is kind of, I think, where we mostly go. Or will we believe that we are not enough? Will we give of ourselves for others? Or will we believe that we are not enough? For the next little section, I'm going to assume the best in everybody and myself. And I'm going to assume that for the most part... We want to help other people. Because I think in general, this is true. Of course, there's some people that are like, yeah, I don't help people. Why? Because I don't want to, right? But I think more often than not, 
people do not do the good that they could do in this world because they see the need and they think that they are not enough. They see the need and they think they are not enough, right? This is how I feel when I don't recycle. What is it really going to make a difference? Yeah? I believe climate change is real, but it is a little more convenient to throw the plastic in the trash, right? I'm seeing Miriam shake her head. I've tried to get better at this. Yes. I'm trying to get better at this. Or this is the kind of thing when we see the need, we say, well, I can't meet the need, so I let the overarching need stop me from doing the work in the life of someone that I could do, right? Now, I'm not reading into the text. This is exactly what happens. We learn from the other gospel accounts that Philip comes to Jesus and says, you've got this, ma-. Philip's one of Jesus' disciples and says, there's this massive crowd here. They've been here all day. Dismiss them so they can go home or they can go to a village and they can buy something to eat, Right? And Jesus says, you give them something to eat, which to every pragmatist in the world just sounds like nonsense, just utter nonsense. He's looking at a crowd of 5,000 plus, 5,000 men plus however many women and children. You know, I know I fed at our church picnic. I, I do the work to get that all lined up and we feed about two, 250, right? That takes me a couple days to grocery shop and prepare all that food, right? And work with a team of 15 to 20 people to help me do it. And so if Jesus came and said to me, you feed a bunch of people, I'd be thinking there are 5,000 people here. I've got grocery issues. There's no grocery store nearby. I don't have any food. I've got money issues. You know, can you imagine paying for 5,000 people to eat? I've got all kinds of pragmatic issues that run through my head, which is exactly what Philip says. Verse 17 Yeah, there's 5,000 people and we've got five loaves of bread and two fish, right? And Jesus says, give me what you have. Give me what you have. Jesus is telling us to not allow. We always look at ourselves through what we don't have, our lack. I don't have enough time. I don't have enough talent. I don't have enough money. I don't have enough emotional fortitude. We see ourselves so often through what we don't have. And God is not stupid, right? God is not stupid. I know this is not a deep theological truth, but he does not think that you can give what you do not have. He is simply asking you to give what you do have. And that can make all the difference. That's what this text says. For when we come to a place where we are willing to offer what we have, God does some miraculous things in our lives. There are four. I'm going to tell them to you, and then we're going to go to communion. When we go to God and we offer ourselves what we do have, instead of seeing ourselves through the eyes of what we are not and what we do not have, God will do four miraculous works in our lives. First, he will take us. If we offer ourselves to God, there is not a single one of you that God will say, yeah, actually, I was looking for someone who could do this a little better, right? There's not a single one of you that will look at you and say, I was looking for someone a little more holy. I was looking for someone who could play the guitar a little better. I was looking for someone who could hold a tune a little better. I was looking for someone who had a little stronger voice and doesn't mumble as much and never gets caught over their words. I was looking for someone who could cook a little better, right? God does not say these things. 
He does not ask you to give what you cannot have and do not have. He asks you to give what you have. And if you decide to give it, what will God always do? He will take it. He will take it. And he will do something with it. I could go on and on and on to you about the people of the Bible who God is able to use, who he does not use because they're like, I don't know, the Captain America of spiritual awesomeness, you know? It's not work. It doesn't work that way. God takes all these men and women throughout the scriptures who are flawed. And it's the part of the beauty of what we're looking at here is that these men are flawed and God uses them despite their flaws. I'm going to show you one thing in the Bible that I find to be amazing. And maybe you will or maybe you won't. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we're going to look at the life of Paul. Paul, there are 27 books in the New Testament. Paul wrote 13 of them, 13 of them. Paul, before he came to Christ, was a religious zealot and fundamentalist who sought after other people who followed Jesus and killed them, right? After Paul comes to know Jesus, we are told that he still had significant flaws. He had some kind of thing that they called the, we don't know what it is, but it was like this thorn in the flesh. He was, he was imminently flawed. Jesus did not, God did not look down from heaven and say, there's Paul, my chosen instrument. He can, he is awesome. I don't know why he chose Paul. He just chose Paul. I don't really have a theological hypothesis for why he chose him. But Paul was deeply flawed. In fact, and this is so beautiful to me. I hope you see the beauty of this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, when Paul is trying to teach the, the church at Corinth to not be divided, look at what he says. If you haven't opened your Bibles to this, it's on page 924, and you almost have to see it with your eyes to believe it. We'll start at verse 12. What I mean to say is one of you follows Paul, another follows Apollos, another follows Cephas, and another of you say you follow Christ. The church at Corinth had the problem of the cult of personality. They weren't following after God and through Jesus. They were following after their favorite preacher. And so Paul says and chastises them and says, Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? And the answer, these are rhetorical questions that have an obvious no answer. Does this make sense? And he says, verse 14, I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. Apparently, he baptized these two men. But then do you see what it says next? You you have to see this to believe it. None of you can say you were baptized in my name because I only baptized Crispus and Gaius. And then in the inspired word of God, Paul, who is not remembering accurately, remembers Oh, wait a second. I didn't just baptize Crispus and Gaius. I also baptized the household of Stephanus. And actually beyond that, I'm not sure. I might have baptized a few other people too. And then in verse 17, he says, but forget all that. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with wisdom or eloquence, which he's doing a good job of. His memory's kind of gone. But the cross of Christ, lest the cross of, cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are preaching, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul didn't, Jesus did not choose Paul because he's the most awesome. He chose him because he'll take us and he'll use us even in our flaws. This does not make the Bible less amazing. It makes it more so. Can you see this? 
that he uses us in all of our flaws. I find it so interesting. Do you think God remembers who Paul baptized? Of course. And Paul doesn't remember who he's baptized. And yet, the Holy Spirit has inspired, preserved these God, this, this, this text. It's exactly how God wants it to be. To show us. To show us that God will take anyone. He will use anyone to show the power of God. For in our weakness, God is strong. That's the first thing he'll do. He'll take us. The second thing he'll do, he will bless us. The blessing of God means that you will not be the same afterwards. The blessing of God means you will be changed. When Jesus took those five loaves, five small loaves and two fish, he takes them and he blesses them. And he does, he changes the very nature of the world around him in in its doing. If you are blessed by God, you will not be the same. And then next, he breaks them. He takes those five loaves, those two fish, and he breaks them. He breaks them. I was doing my sermon PowerPoint last night. I'd already finished my sermon long ago, but I was putting in, you know, just typing in into the PowerPoint. And um, Harrison was sitting next to me on my bed. He's my nine-year-old son. And... um, he turns to me and daddy is like, what are you talking about? God breaks us. Because that doesn't sound very good, does it? When I mean God breaks you, what I mean is he removes all of your selfishness. He takes away your selfishness. And after God blesses you, you are not the same. And he breaks you so that you'll be something else. Your will has been changed. Your desires have been changed. And then fourth, he gives you back to others. He takes you, he blesses you, he breaks you, and he does it all to give you out to the world to change it. To give you to the world to change it. Some of us may think, I don't want to be given to the world. I want to pursue my own stuff, yeah? And yet, the joy of Christianity, the the glory of Christianity, of following after Jesus, is this, incredible experience of faith in which we believe what Jesus said when he says this, those who would save their life will lose it. And those who would lose their life for my sake will what? Will gain it. Will save it. And so we give our lives to God and we are promised that the result of all of that will be what? Will be purpose and joy. And so this morning, as we have the communion element set before us, I want to pray that as we come forward in just a moment, that God would do a work in your life so that you would see how loved you are of God. And I pray that God's spirit would do a work in your life so that you would be empowered, that you would be empowered to believe that God can use you in all your awesomeness and your weakness in all your talents and your lack of talent. For what God is offered, he takes. What he takes, he blesses, he transforms. What he transforms, he breaks us so that we are not the same. And by not being the same, he gives us back to the world and to ourself. And the result is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness, and faithfulness, and self-control.
Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your love, and we ask now that by the power of your Spirit that you would open our eyes to see the reality of Jesus so that we might follow in his steps, so that we might emulate his life, so that we might experience the freedom and joy that will come through giving our life to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.